Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. We're so excited to have David Wiss back to the show for a follow-up interview. David has a master's in nutrition, he's a registered dietitian, and is currently completing his PhD in public health. In this interview, we dive deeper into some of the more difficult, sometimes even uncomfortable conversations in the food addiction recovery space. David is the founder of Nutrition in Recovery, a group practice in Los Angeles, specializing in substance use disorder, eating disorders, body image, mental health, as well as general wellness. He has contributed 16 articles to peer-reviewed journals and book chapters on his various topics of expertise, including nutrition for substance use disorder, food addiction, and eating disorders. David has spoken at dozens of academic conferences on these topics and is passionate about helping people achieve long-term recovery. Today, we talk about some of the different food philosophies in the food addiction space, and he shares his thoughts on the controversial topic of fiber. Is it important? How much of it should we be getting a day? What is the difference between Team Starve and Team Feed? What we really hope you listen to, maybe a few times, is our discussion about the weight thinness bias that exists um, in the food addiction community and even among some food addiction professionals. We touch on some really important topics like what role does body dissatisfaction play in our decision-making process when it comes to selecting a more restrictive food plan? Does our internalized weight bias color the way we think about food and label it as good or bad? Are we still driven by the relentless pursuit of thinness when seeking food addiction recovery? We also discuss why David thinks these topics need to be discussed in order to bridge that gap between the food addiction community and the eating disorder community. David also shares why with food addiction recovery, we must look at so much more than just the food plan. What are all the sources of reward in a person's life? How recovery for those with a fuller life of community, connection, meaning, direction, and a sense of purpose creates a different neurochemical mix that can help us heal from this addiction and find long-lasting recovery. I could go on and on, but I would rather you listen closely, pause and reflect, scroll back, listen again, because this one is loaded with helpful takeaways. Enjoy the show. All right. We are so excited to have David Wiss back on the podcast. Thank you so much for rejoining us again. You guys are so fun. I love coming on here and I'm so proud of you guys for putting together such a fantastic show. I've really appreciated some of the episodes. Oh, that's awesome, David. Thank you. Uh, We're going to jump right in. And so today we want to talk or start off on the hot topic of fiber. We recently had Dr. Ken Berry on the show and he said fiber was not necessary for us. Anyone who follows you on Instagram knows you are in the hashtag fiber gang. Can you tell us why in your professional experience and from the research you have read or written as to why it's such an important piece for recovery? Also, what you believe are some of the cons of some of the nutrition approaches out there that seem to restrict forms of fiber in various foods and how this may be detrimental in the long run. Okay, so we're going to get right into it. Today, we are talking about fiber. And I think, you know, as I've mentioned many times in the past, and I think even on this podcast, there does seem to be a campsite culture in the nutrition world. So there's team exclusion, team inclusion, and that's like you know, one of the main gaps that I've tried to bridge over the years. And it seems like that scenario sort of plays out again with fiber and gut bacteria. There seems to be team starve and then team feed, right? So yes, I'm very familiar with both approaches. And just like the other campsite scenario, I try not to pick one or the other. So I do believe that there are certain medical conditions that do require 
very deliberate fiber-based interventions, starving out certain types of fibers in order to change presence of gut bacteria. And I also know, and this is probably a campsite that I'm a little more familiar with because of the work that I do. And by the way, I work in behavioral health. So my information is somewhat biased towards behavioral health nutrition, looking at the lens of addictive disorders, binge eating disorders, not just looking at things from a purely medical standpoint. I try to go beyond biomedical reductionism and look at the entire context, right? An individual in the context of their home and their community and the food that they eat. And this is my training as a public health professional. So Team Fiber, Team Feed, we'll call it, I have a little bit of a bias toward because of the population that I work with, okay? So that doesn't mean that I don't see the value in deliberate fiber restriction type diets. I've used them with my patients, whether it be FODMAP or certain approaches for SIBO. But in general, for people with recovery-related needs, this is not necessarily speaking to all medical patients, but people with recovery-related needs often do benefit from a higher fiber diet. And it is safe to say that the standard American diet is low in fiber, period. And it's been my opinion and assessment over the years that chronic low fiber does throw people out of homeostasis, okay? And does that mean that this other guest that you had is wrong? No, right? There's probably some really clear cases where getting rid of the fibers was the solution for that person. But in general, now we're speaking broadly about the population, most people get about half the grams of fiber that they need. The standard recommendation is 30 to 40 grams, somewhere in that range. Most people are getting in the teens and they're not getting a wide range of fibers. And so a lot of the work that I do with people is gradually increasing their fiber intake so that their gut can reach a more balanced environment. We know that fiber comes in plants and we know that plants are beneficial. So if anyone made the argument that you don't need fiber, essentially they're arguing against plants. And I would sense that they are promoting full animal product diets. And I'm aware of that. I'm aware uh, that it exists. Is that something that I've ever done? No. Do I ever see that? No, for me. Am I open to it? Yes. I got to be open to all things. And I think that's so important to not get too stuck to one food philosophy. But Fiber Gang was a funner way of saying team fiber, which means that, yes, we are promoting the use of plants. And that includes whole grains, beans, nuts, and seeds, and trying to get a wide range of fibers in order to improve the environment in someone's gut ecosystem. And there isn't a single way to do that. And that's where individualized nutrition comes in. That's where food logs come in, figuring out what kinds of fiber people aren't getting and seeing if we can't strategically introduce them using probiotics. And so I have had a lot of success on the feeding rather than the starving protocols for gastrointestinal issues, especially in the context of substance use disorders, eating disorders, and food addiction. Now, there's a lot of nuances there, and I'm happy to get in some of them, but I think it's just a fun way to encourage people to eat more plants, to eat more real food, and to make it exciting for people that don't think eating plants is cool. It's like, yeah, join the fiber gang. We're out here. Yeah. And I mean, you touched on it exactly. We have many colleagues in the field of food addiction that promote carnivore or keto, which is typically higher fat, moderate protein as food plans for people who are in food addiction recovery, attempting to get abstinent from these highly processed foods that they are clearly addicted to. And so they will say, read this book. It's called Fiber Menace, the truth about the leading role of fiber in your diet. So that's what they promote for their clients. And I guess what I'm wondering is, what thoughts specifically do you think go into how these foods might be addictive or contribute to the addiction? Like if you look at both camps, because you're trying to bridge the gap, the gap, I mean, that camp that says no fiber when it comes to addiction, recovery, food addiction, recovery, like what do you think are the, like the arguments there versus where you're showing up saying, no, no, like we need to be feeding. Yeah. Bridge Great that question, for us. Molly. Yeah. I have a point of view that I think will be helpful to food addiction listeners and followers. I think there's a strong bias in the food addiction world toward thinness. And I think it might come from the experience of living in a larger body. 
And I think a lot of people have experienced living in a body that doesn't feel like home and it's traumatic and anything that they could do to reverse or mitigate that's going to be their number one pick. Okay. And so I've been really interested in the food addiction conversation. I've published on this many articles and I've looked at the role of dietary restraint. And I really want to start looking more at the inherent role of body dissatisfaction in people's decision-making processes. So for example, if someone lived in a body that didn't feel like home and they finally were able to get off an addictive way of eating and lose some weight, and they found a way of eating that kept them as the thinnest that they could possibly be, I think that that person would subconsciously or consciously want to choose that and believe that it was the best thing for them. And this might not even be true for someone that quote unquote, lived in a larger body. If there was a five foot four female who was always between 100 and 110, never wanted to be above 110 and found that when they're eating fibrous fruits and vegetables and they're eating buckwheat and a little bit of beans here and there, they go above 110 because their muscles are storing glycogen. There's more fiber and fecal matter in their GI tract they might choose the low fiber, no fiber diet so they could be at 108. And I think that we don't address this issue of internalized weight bias enough in the food addiction community. I think a lot of people are so driven by their internalized weight bias that it completely colors the way that they look at food. So I would make the argument that the person whose body dissatisfied at 110 might do better eating a little bit of beans and some intact grains and some fruits and vegetables if it meant they were 112, but they don't want to be 112. They want to be on team starve. They want to be on team restrict because of the experiences they've had with their body. It doesn't feel safe for them to be above a certain weight. And so I'm able to start recognizing a lot of bias that practitioners as well as people have towards certain ways of eating that favor that ultimate goal that people have, and a lot of people aren't willing to admit, is that they're really driven by the relentless pursuit of thinness. And that's the thing that colors all their food choices. I love that so much because it makes so much sense to me. And I could even see it in my own personal life trying to think, oh, I'm going to do carnivore because I'm never going to be hungry then or keto because I'm never going to be hungry. And we can't be afraid of hunger, right? It's a signal that we need and we should be enjoying our food, but not participating in that still diet mindset of constantly dropping weight. So I just want to thank you for that because. It really resonated with me. I also want to acknowledge you for being asked to present at the International Conference on Eating Disorders a few weeks ago. And I just wanted to check in, like, what did you present on and did you receive any feedback from the presentation? Yeah, thank you. With virtual conferences, things aren't what they used to be, as most people know. So we were accepted to do a workshop that was pre-recorded and deposited. So me and Dr. Brewerton presented on our recent paper, Separating the Signal from the Noise, how psychiatric diagnoses can help discern food addiction from dietary restraint. It's a paper that I'm very proud of. We outlined eight steps which can help clinicians discern between if a food addiction diagnosis is a real signal or if it's muddled out by the noise of dieting and other psychiatric diagnoses like substance use disorder, depressive symptoms, et cetera. We have three clinical vignettes in that paper. And so we put together a fantastic collaborative presentation. And I think it was a big deal because we were able to get a voice at the eating disorder, the international eating disorder conference, which generally has poo-pooed the topic of food addiction, has written it off as part of the problem and has really quieted a lot of the voices. And so it was a definite milestone. I did present a poster at ICED maybe 2017 on my defang thing. So I'm not going to say it's the first, but it's definitely the first workshop. Unfortunately, because it wasn't live, we didn't get a chance to interact much with people. So I look forward to being able to do these things where there's live feedback, live conversations. I would certainly anticipate some pushback. But as most people know, if you followed my work, I do my work in a way that doesn't really leave that much room for pushback because I always go on both sides of the fence. I consider the contextual factors. I think about underlying stress, trauma, and adversity. 
And I present both arguments in a scientific, hopefully non-biased way. So I encourage people to take a look at that paper. It's open access if you haven't read it already. Yeah. And we were really interested in your experience because we interviewed Molly Carmel earlier this year and she presented in April, 2020, which of course was completely virtual, but it was, she said it was really interesting. She applied, it was accepted. And then like in the days ahead of time, she started getting phone calls from the head honchos asking her to change her presentation because eating disorder, nutritionist, therapist, whoever were giving pushback on the agenda. And she pushed back and said, no, you guys accepted it as it is. So that's it. And they took it. But she also like you didn't receive feedback after the fact either because of the virtual thing. So it will be really interesting as time goes on and things start opening up again. And we're having these in person because I think it's a very real conversation we need to have. And I agree your paper lays out those eight different signals to look for. It just made it so much more clear in my mind too. So definitely we'll link that in the show notes too. So yeah, let me add, let me add. I think that, I think that in order to really get the food addiction conversation out there to the more classic eating disorder world, we have to talk about dietary restraint. We have to talk about restriction, deprivation, weight stigma. We have to talk about internalized weight bias because those are the important topics in that community. And when a group of people are talking about food and addiction and kind of systematically ignoring those topics, it's not a good look. It looks like a bunch of people that are in club diet that don't want to really talk about some of these larger systemic issues. So I want to encourage the food addiction community to be willing to talk about your own biases around body weight, around thinness, to be able to talk about the role of your restriction in your relationship to food in order to get that really important platform so we can integrate these two communities. A hundred percent. And that leads me right into my next question. We Can we talk about being too restrictive in our food choices when it comes to food addiction recovery? And even more specifically around that conversation, how do you work with clients who do, you're like, clear, this is food addiction. How do you do that with the food choices? Because that's such an important, our clients are constantly coming to us with questions about that. Yeah. I've learned that the brain does come to learn and expect a certain amount of dopamine from daily activities, right? And so I try to look at someone's entire lifestyle, right? So we're thinking about things like caffeine, nicotine, even sex or other behavioral things that are rewarding in some ways. And so what I've learned is that if your brain is used to getting a certain amount of reward and it's it's able to make a reward prediction from food and all of a sudden, based on a recovery approach, starts to get none, right? The risk for your brain to make the case that you need to get some kind of dopamine is going to be very strong because these are survival mechanisms that some people would refer to as the reptilian brain. But it's different from person to person. Some people do really well, like on a quote unquote dopamine fast, you starve out all of it and you just get into really plain things and you do none of it. Some people seem to find that and find the inner peace and are able to keep that sustainably moving forward. But the majority of people's brains will revolt and they're not okay with zero reward from food. And so each person in my clinical experience has somewhat of a sweet spot between enough reward and too much reward. And it is a moving target, right? So very often I am working with someone based on my 30 minutes of assessment forms and tools that I use, plus a comprehensive intake. And then usually using a food log, I'm going to help someone find their sweet spot between what's the right amount of neurochemical reward that one should get from food. But again, it has to be looked at in the context of all the other sources of reward in their life. So let's take two, uh, do a thought experiment. There's two people, one of them's 40, let's say one person to make it simple because we're not going to genetically clone people. Let's just say one person, two scenarios, right? Someone is 40 and they're extremely body dissatisfied, haven't had a successful relationship in many years and really has a lot of guilt and shame around binge eating, And then all of a sudden they are seeking help for their binge eating. Maybe they perceive it to be food addiction, but they really just want to lose weight. That's really what's driving all of it. And again, there's nothing wrong with wanting to lose weight, but if losing weight is the thing that clouds all the judgment on all these other factors, you're going to be biased and you're going to miss out 
the bigger picture, right? And that's what I often help people try to see. If all of your decisions are filtered through that lens, they're going to be skewed towards seeing things in a way that might not be beneficial to your long-term health. And in fact, it might make you gain weight over time, right? So if that person is trying to get on a, what we'll call, and I don't like to call things restrictive because there's so much room for interpretation there, right? What's restrictive to one person is not restrictive to the next person. Some people think that cutting out fried food and refined sugar is restrictive. And to someone else, that's just a better way of eating, right? Someone else might want to cut out all grains completely. And that could be seen as restrictive as one person. Some people have even want to go even further and get more and more. So I think that term is ill-defined, but let's say they want to get off highly palatable foods. Okay. And they are going to switch from something that was, let's say a little messy with food to something that was really clearly defined, but let's say they hate their job and they don't have a romantic partner and they're all by themselves, right? And they don't feel like they're part of a community. It might be harder for that person to succeed. And let's take that same person in another scenario. And let's say that person just got the promotion they always wanted. They, they joined a hiking club and they started hiking and they met someone else and they fell in love. And now they have oxytocin flowing through their body and there's serotonin happening and there's new purpose, meaning, and direction. There's all these other factors that are going on. And all those other factors might actually influence the neurochemical reward that someone gets from the food. So when food, and this is one of my criticisms of the food addiction kind of models, that when it's looked at purely biologically, just as the substance itself and the interaction it has with the brain, you're going to ignore all the other contextual factors, right? Job satisfaction, love, comfort, trauma history. The science can suggest that the dopamine response that someone gets from these things are going to be different in these different situations, right? So I do think it's important to go and I'm trained in biological sciences, right? And these are things, I got a master's in nutrition. I'm a registered dietitian. I'm just finishing my PhD in public health. I'm also trained in social science and uh, population health. And I really do think that looking at food addiction purely as just a neurochemical and biological thing at the individual level does miss a lot of the important nuance that other kind of recovery cultures seem to incorporate. Now, I am not saying that that's what people are doing, right? I know people in 12-step are thinking about these things, but when I am looking at someone's relationship to food, it does make sense to incorporate the larger ecological factors. Yeah, that's so true. I love that. So you were just talking so much about the weight. And I think both Molly and I, when we start working with clients, it is about the weight, about the weight, about the weight. And how do you work with clients in relationship to the scale? And can you talk about that a little bit? Because it does, this little piece of metal seems to determine our self-worth, our happiness, our joy. And how do you work with clients around that relationship with the scale? It depends, right? Like I have an office and I have a medical scale there and like it's visible, right? I almost never have people step on it and they sometimes are blown away by the expectancy that they came to see me and I was going to have them step on it, but I didn't. When I work with eating disorder clients where we're working more on weight gain, I'm more likely to make that a regular part of our, our treatment. But I think what people still struggle with is the assumption that their weight is entirely a function of nutrition and exercise. And the data is just like profoundly showing that that's not the case. I mean, in some instances, it is more that than other things, right? But there's so many other factors like gut microbiome, environmental toxins, underlying stress, trauma, and adversity, hormonal issues that can be influenced. But I think when people really do assume that their weight is up to them and they could manipulate it in whatever direction they want, you're headed for a lot of disappointment. Now, don't get me wrong. There's people that can just do nutrition and exercise, start dropping weight, get to the number that they wanted. That is not the majority. That is not what we see clinically, right? I've seen people that we do a food sensitivity test. We do a, a stool test. We do micronutrient testing. We got them on good supplements. They're on a steady amount of calories, they start exercising and they're not losing weight. And that tells a really important story that people don't want to hear. 
And so when people come in with that concern, well, I do give people the evidence and the data, which is that there's a chance that your body could respond well to treatment and start changing. There's also a chance that you could get all the benefits like clearer mind, better sleep, not obsessing around your thoughts, consistent, well-formed bowel movements. Let's go. Fiber gang, right? And you could get all these improved things and your weight might not change that much. And you should think about being okay with that. And I've also seen people who have weight-related goals and their weight doesn't budge for like eight months. And then one day the weight starts coming off. It's almost like some of these other factors caught up. And I do suspect that a lot of it has to do with gut bacteria. When I do a stool test with someone and we see that their ratios are way skewed, it makes a strong case of why their body isn't so quick to quote unquote drop pounds. You bring up such a good point or you talking made me think of something really important. And I think that's, I guess, to hear you speak like that about clients that you work with, it just makes me believe that you're non-judgmental about when a person walks through your door, you're not looking at their body and judging them because of their weight over, under, whatever. Like you're attempting to look at the whole picture. You're trying to meet this person where they're at and really figure out what works for them to get them to their wellness goals, whatever that might be. And I think it's just really important because you brought up a really great point. There are many people in the food addiction camp that are obsessed with the weight and the body shape and amongst other things. And I think that that just sets us up for more shame and guilt. And I guess the message I want to give to listeners right here is listen to David and he basically find providers like David, like myself, like Clarissa, whoever, where we're not going to judge you based on your weight. If you are free of the mental obsession, if you are on your way to health goals, that you're improving blood markers or whatever needs to happen to do that, then that's what we're going to support you in doing. We are not going to be the people that are pushing you to meet a certain number. Like we're not going to contribute to that negative messaging that's hurting you actually. So thank you so much. I just wanted to, I guess, call that out, that it's an important part of this conversation that needs to happen. Yeah, there's a lot of research on weight stigma at the societal level. And I mentioned internalized weight bias kind of at the individual level. And I think it's safe to assume that this can be a form of stress or even trauma or adversity that drives eating. So part of the work that I do, and this can go in conjunction with food addiction recovery, is help people release their own negative judgment around their body. Because once that starts to improve, and it's easier said than done, I know this is really difficult, meaningful work, we find that people are binging less and right, having less conflict around the food and feeling able to navigate the tricky food terrain a little bit more smoothly. And over time, maybe there'll be changes, but I always prepare people for the possibility that your weight goal is not going to be met. And that's an important part of the work, right? And yeah, frustrating for some, but in conversations that I'm willing to have. Yeah. And it's just such like this food addiction recovery is a lifelong thing right? So looking to seek that in that first year, meet my weight goals, that's not a lifelong journey, right? This is a chronic disease and it has to be treated for life. And your body eating the right foods will figure it out. You just got to give it time and put those patient's pants on, I think is probably the hardest thing for anyone who is so used to compulsive, impulsive behavior anyways. So yeah, I love that. Thank you so much for One other thing that's worth thinking about is like, where does your weight goal come from? And that's such an important question that I try to ask people. I'm like, okay, like, tell me about that number. Like, was there a time in your life when you were like that number and you have a euphoric recall and you're trying to recapture your early twenties when you're in your late forties? Like, right. Like, where does that number come from? If someone says their lowest weight was 130, their highest weight was 250. And then you say, what's your weight goal? And they're like 130 right? It's like, oh, you want to be the least that you've ever been in your adult life, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I just wonder, will you be able to sustain that and even eat a blueberry? Yeah. No, it's so true. I think mine came from Cosmopolitan magazine. And it's also that pant size too, that can keep us so stuck, right? It's like, I need to be an eight. If I'm not an eight, then my life is not great. And so I think those are the other things we need to watch out for, for sure. Can you tell us a little bit about attuned eating and does it relate to when, how, and what you eat? What's the goal and how do we reach it? 
Yes, I will go there. And I want to add something about pant sizes. One of my favorite things to do is encourage people to throw out some of those clothes that they've been trying to get back into. I think it's such an important part of the process. Attuned eating is a term that was not created by me. It is a term that I do like. It falls under the same kind of umbrella as mindful eating, intuitive eating, all things that have their own sort of definitions and nuances. The intuitive eating folks are very particular about what that means and don't want it used in the wrong context, right? And so there's been other terms to describe similar processes, which is that you start to help your body restore itself to a homeostasis where you can increase certain levels of trust around food. One of the things that gets missed in intuitive eating, and I've said this before, it's worth saying again, is like they emphasize intuitively knowing what to eat, but there also should be a consideration of intuitively knowing what not to eat, right? That can also be a part of it, which I think they would probably disagree with. And that's where attuned eating comes in, I think a little bit more. When I think about something being attuned. I think about something being in tune, like oscillating, modulating to match the current scenario and changing over time. So I think intuitive assumes there's often a reference to the baby, right? That we're born as intuitive eaters and that we want to return to being the intuitive eater that we were when we were nine months and not binging, right? And I like that. I like that kind of idea. Attuned eating is more like using the data of our current environment to make adjustments and adaptations to figure out how do I get most in tune with what's true for me biologically, psychologically, socially, which is important, and to allow that to evolve over time. So we think about like a tuning fork, like tuning in to your relationship to food using things like hunger and fullness, which I do believe in. I do believe that people checking in, how hungry am I before the meal? How full am I after? Is a beneficial practice more so than it needs to be three quarters of a cup, it needs to be five ounces, and it needs to be 16 ounces. I do think people will benefit from using attuned eating, hungerfulness, mindful eating, in many cases, principles of intuitive eating over time. Does that mean that they capture all people? No. Does that mean that they have to be used as they were defined originally? No. How do we extract principles from things and make them relevant to other quote unquote campsites, right? Yeah. And I think I, you know, in hearing you describe it, it just really reminds me of like, I use the term informed eating where I'm always saying like, I reserve the right to change my mind. If I have new information, I need to change, right? I should be able to change my mind. But there are sometimes gatekeepers (laughs) that will say that's not okay, you can't make these changes without talking to three different people about it or whatever it might be. And I think that really takes away ownership of our food and just like replays that whole, like I'm doing it wrong. I'm doing right all over again. And so to hear you talk about attuned eating, I really appreciate that because yes, we need to empower people and not say like eat five ounces of this and three quarters of a cup that like taking that, those 10 deep breaths before you eat. And for what purpose am I eating this food? How hungry am I really checking in? And like, can I just put my food on a salad plate size thing? And will that be enough? Or am I really hungry because I've been eating in six hours? So maybe I need to be a little more protein heavy, you know, whatever it is that works for you. So I appreciate you filling us in on that. I mean, I've obviously I'm a fan of yours. I watch your TikToks. I'm, I'm following you on Instagram and I've heard you one minute little clips on it kind of thing. So it's nice to hear you expand on that. So thinking about attuned eating, informed eating, whatever that might be, what foods would you suggest to people who struggle to sleep at night? For example, we've heard that a small amount of starch 60 to 90 minutes before bed can help with that serotonin effect and like really help get that sleep thing going. We have a lot of clients who feel like they can't sleep unless they have full bellies. And I, and we think they're seeking that serotonin effect. Talk to us about that. Yeah. Let me go there, but add one point on the attuned eating thing. In addition, as you probably figured out, tend to stay away from prescriptive numbers, right? Like eat this amount because it could change based on what else is in the meal, what else you've done that day, what else you've done activity wise. But if there was one thing that I did like to kind of move people toward as a recommendation is the fiber recommendation. Try to get at least 30 grams of fiber per day. And that would mean trying to get 10 grams of fiber at those meals. 
And that recommendation is very difficult for people to do. And I just want to state that for those people that are more on the protein and vegetable side of town, you're not getting it. You can't get it from usually the vegetables aren't as fibrous as people seem to think. And so there does need to be some consideration of maybe things like beans or chia seeds soaked in water, things of that nature. So I do think that fiber is one of our key topics today, helps people become homeostatic eaters and be more likely to be attuned with the hunger and the fullness. And that's why I'm such a proponent of the fiber. Your next question is about sleep. And I'm also like, you've probably figured out, like I'm a friend of carbohydrates, right? Like I believe that the most nutritious foods on the planet are carbohydrates. That is my belief system. And I don't mean to diminish the nutritional value of things like red meat and other things that I know are nutritious in different ways. But in terms of the things that I'm interested in, like longevity, anti-cancer, gut health, right? We're looking at things that are in the plant kingdom. And so people that are on too low of carbohydrate diets can run into some sleeping difficulties. And yes, they can be corrected by adding in this carbohydrates in the evening. I know that a very popular approach, at least once upon a time, I don't know how popular it is now, people would seem to low carb throughout the day and then have dinner be their kind of carbohydrate meal. And I think a lot of people report that being a ticket to better sleep. And sleep is really important. It's really, really important. And if someone is on a diet that they can't sleep on, I mean, that should tell something. I think the other approach that was common was like carbohydrates in the morning and then less and less throughout the day, maybe do like a fruit for a snack and then just have mostly protein in the evening. And that can certainly work for some people. It depends. Some people have different hormones, different lifestyles. But yes, I have seen people and worked with people where going lower carb during the day and having the carbs in the evening did help promote sleep. For someone that's on, like does a low carb dinner, having a little bit of a sweet potato or some frozen fruit that's mixed in with some kefir, maybe some cacao nibs on top. Those are all things that can be helpful for sleep. And I think that prioritizing sleep, especially in the context of body weight, eating behavior is so, so important. And this is going back to like, okay, those people that have the relentless pursuit of thinness, if eating a sweet potato at 9 p.m. every night made you retain more water and you gained three pounds, but you slept better and you felt better, wouldn't that be worth it? And the rational people say, yes. People that have trauma around their body would say, yes, but no, I can't, right? And that's yeah. what we need to think about. Which is, that's beautiful because I mean, you've agreed to come to our food addiction professional network meeting in July. And I'm really excited for that and to speak to this group of professionals, but there are many in that group that I think are questioning this advice that we have this carbohydrate, not necessarily a load or anything like that, but something like that, right? That sweet potato at 9 PM so that we can be asleep by 10 and we can actually have great sleep. I think there's fear there. And so, I mean, how do we help them not have so much fear around half a sweet potato, a sweet potato at 9 PM or parsnips or pumpkin or chickpeas or something like what can we do to just back them away from that? Yeah. I think it's safe to say that the fear is probably one, either weight gain or two binging, right? And to my previous points, I think it's safe to say if someone's life can get improved to where they're not driven by unresolved stressors, traumas, and adversity, having high levels of anxiety symptoms, and you can work on balancing out the diet so that carbohydrates aren't scarce. They exist in small amounts throughout the day. And you're getting enough fiber. You're not overactivating your reward system. You're not underactivating your reward system. You've got reward homeostasis. You've got gut homeostasis. Life is happening. Can't expect life to always be great. We always have stuff that is out of our control, but we perhaps use a spiritual program to figure out how to best navigate that. Being able to navigate something like a sweet potato or a honey crisp apple or things like that become more plausible. And so I think instead of focusing on the 
should it be a sweet potato or should it be a parsnip? Should it be a Honeycrisp apple or should it be a Fiji apple? I think those are the kind of things that matter for some people. But I do think that looking at the entire picture can have a larger upstream impact. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I think it's more about being willing to like be curious about your body and how it reacts and like that experimentation piece. Maybe you will feel a little bit more craving if you introduce that sweet potato, but like, are you able to manage it? And can we make a safety plan around it? And rather than just like thinking I'm going to have this one bite and then I'm going to be binging my brains out, right? And going to that place every single time, like that's just not always the case. And so we can't live in that fear. So we have Patreon accounts and one of our listeners picked you, David Wiss, to answer his question. So I am going to read it to you and you can just respond. So listener Keith asks, I became bulimic at 17. I was always told and believed it started as a result of childhood sexual abuse by a teacher that lasted for three years. I stayed bulimic till my mid-30s. Inpatient, outpatient treatment never discussed nutrition. Portion control, endless hours, reliving the horrors of my youth, along with being told every time I purge, it could be my last because I will stroke out and die. During these years, I also achieved long-term sobriety through AA 12-step but was told I would eventually relapse without eating disorder recovery. I did relapse after 14 years. If I came to you with this history, what would you recommend as a path to full addiction recovery? Thank you for that background. I think that there's a lot there. The first thing that comes up is that I'm sorry that the eating disorder treatment wasn't trauma-informed in the way that was meaningful and helpful. And I think that there's a lot of change happening in the field where people are becoming more trauma-informed. Even that term is up for debate, right? Like people are trauma-informed in different ways, right? What does that actually mean? Are people doing, what interventions are people doing? And there's tons of debate there, but yeah, I did recently post a video called Trauma-Informed Nutrition Therapy, which is on my website and on YouTube, and I can share that information later. But I think that anyone that would try to answer a a full treatment picture based on limited information would really be showing their own biases, right? I would be basically saying, this is what I believe is the best thing for people. I would want to learn a little bit more before I make any treatment recommendations. I always have people fill out a bunch of assessment tools where I'm looking at things like food addiction and eating disorders and trauma history and things of that nature. And then a full kind of comprehensive intake. And even at the end of my first session, I don't always know, right? We kind of need to set an ongoing assessment process. But the biggest thing that comes from listening to Keith, and thank you for sharing that personal stuff, is that I do have a bias toward thinking about treatment and recovery concurrently rather than sequentially. I think historically in the field, there's always been a like, all right, treat this and then keep this. And then when you're ready to give that up, right, then maybe this one comes back and people oscillate between eating disorders and substance use disorders. And I do think that there's a future in treating them in in an integrated fashion at the same time, rather than let's let one of them run amok while the other one gets treated. But I also do understand that approach, right, is that there's a deep need for some kind of behavior to fulfill some either core wound or developmental processes. So yes, I think that what I would probably move toward is a integrated concurrent treatment approach for the addiction and the eating disorder that involved nutrition, that involved spirituality, and that involved therapy and the entire biopsychosocial approach. It's a great answer. I feel like that would be something I would say too. I mean, eating disorders are not my specialty, but I feel like I would say the same, that it's got to be this whole picture approach with a lot of support, just like with a lot of support, because if we're going to be taking out the alcohol or the drug foods or whatever it is, and you're going to go be reliving in his words, reliving the horrors of my youth, like that's going to be difficult to stay abstinent from those things while we're ripping this wound open and just all that support. But no, I'm, I agree. I've been going back and forth with this. Again, there are many people in the addiction world, right? Like I always call them the OGs, like they've been around for a long, long time and they are very much that sequential, like 
nope, take out the drugs, take out the alcohol, take out the foods, take out the whatever. And then a few years down the line, you can do this, whatever. And I know I've shown up and I've kind of re I've regurgitated that same information, but the well-rounded clinician in me is like, that was never my experience working with people. It's always been this concurrent, like let's address this other stuff as we're doing this thing. And while it may take you longer to get to 100% abstinence or closer to 100% abstinence, they're coming out, right? People are just coming out that other end, like more put together. Like they don't look like they just got ran over by a Mack truck. They have some real foundation underneath them. So thank you for being willing to answer Keith's question to the best of your ability with what little information you had. Yeah. And there's some really good uh, trauma treatments that don't involve going into details about what happened and just staying in the present moment and not having to recount or relive horrors, not to say that that can't become appropriate at some point, but they aren't focused on talking about the events per se. Yeah, absolutely. And promote. Yeah. EMDR, somatic experience. Like, yes, there are lots of exactly. And, and he even referenced 1977. He was 17. So clearly whatever he was experiencing then is very different today. So, okay. Our final question, maybe we'll see. Since we have already asked you our signature question way back when, I think you were our very first like guest. So since we asked you that, we want to know instead, what is the number one thing you believe anyone who thinks they might have a food addiction should do to start their process of recovery? Great question. I think that the direction of the field, at least the contributions that I've been trying to make are about getting a very comprehensive intake and assessment process and looking for information that's free of bias. And I think that this message is really important for people in recovery is don't take on other people's diagnoses, don't take on other people's problems, and then therefore extrapolate their solution to you. Find out what is true for each individual. You see it in the 12-step world all the time. They take on their sponsors, whether it be their abstinence or their food plan, and they just do what someone else is doing because they're not sure. That definitely makes sense given there's constraints around what someone has access to. You only have access to a sponsor, like take advantage of that. But if you're able to access people that have been trained in the assessment process, in the discernment process that have treatment options, that's a really good thing to think about because you're going to, I've seen people oscillate between the different camps. Like, all right, I'm going with a sugar addiction provider. And then I went and saw someone that does intuitive eating. And I tried that for a year and I was anti them, but then this didn't work. And then I switched back and I became anti them, right? I think there's a growing base of people that are able to be less biased around a particular food philosophy and more in tune with let's figure out what works for you. So having more questions than answers. I love that. It's so true. What is true for you? This is what we need to repeat over and over and over again. So where can our listeners find you? And then I do have one more question after that. Great. Yes. My website is nutritionin, that's I-N, recovery.com. And I am on Instagram and TikTok. Twitter as well, at David A. Wiss. That's my first name, middle initial A, W-I-S-S. I have a newsletter on my website where I send out my latest work. I have a paper that just got published on food insecurity, linking drug use and depressive disorders. So continually making contributions and loving sharing that with the world. I do respond to messages on social media. You can always send me a message through my website. And, um, you know, as I'm wrapping up my PhD, I have some exciting new plans that I'll hopefully be able to share in upcoming months. We are so grateful for the work that you do, David. So my final question is on our first interview, we talked about the late stage food addict and whether they might at some point be able to reintroduce some of their drug foods. And at that time, you stated that you thought that might be possible. So do you believe that food addiction is not the same wiring in the brain as like alcohol or heroin? Or can you speak to that a bit? Yeah, I think once upon a time, I would have said that the alcohol or the heroin could never use 
successfully. And I think that at my core, I believe that I'm also a sober person. So I benefit greatly from believing that. Right. But like, do I believe that I can make sweeping statements about the population as a whole? No, I think it would be silly for me to do so. So like, is it possible that a hardcore meth addict could get sober, their life could get well, and they could do meth once a year? It has to be possible. Okay. Do I believe that that's true for me? No, I don't benefit from believing that. In fact, it's a risky belief system. Similarly with food, there has to be, I believe in miracles. There has to be instances where that's true. And I think the belief that it's not true can work for someone, but it can also work against them. In other words, if someone had a slip after 15 years, they're like, oh, I know what this means. I know where this is headed. It's going to turn into this big, right? But the real answer to your question really depends on how one defines late stage food addict, right? Because that's not been properly defined, right? And what we're talking about in terms of their alcoholic foods, right? So there isn't a question to that answer on a population level. I think that for some people, the answer is going to be no, they're too well advanced. The dopamine pathways are too well established. They could build new neural pathways, but those ones that are there will always be there and they'll always be dysfunctional. And I think there's going to be cases where people heal their trauma, eat homeostatically, join the fiber gang and are on a high plant forward diet and are thriving with exercise and have love in their life. And then at some later point in their life, have some food and it actually might be a little jarring, but they're able to navigate it with success? Absolutely. Why not assume that all healing is possible, right? But should people count on that? Maybe not. Should people be anxiously awaiting that? Maybe not, but I don't know. All things should be possible in the realm of recovery. And I just believe in the healing process. I believe that especially if trauma is an underlying driver of the addictive processes and people heal their trauma, things can be different. No, I love that answer. It was perfect. It was just like it wrapped it up beautifully because again, it's that whole situation of what is true for you is going to be, there's no blanket answer to that question. And if the one belief system works for you, stick with that plan. And if the other, the idea of healing and be able to live that food freedom life and incorporate some of those things back, then that's the path you need to take. So thank you so much, David, for being on our show today. It was just so fabulous to have you. Yeah, I love joining you guys for conversation. Hopefully we'll do more in the future. Definitely. <laughs> Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one -on -one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours. <laughs> <laughs>